Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This 125th episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, A Second Awakening. Now, I usually leave this announcement for the end, but I'm going to insert it here at the beginning. Donations to keep the Communio Sanctorum host site up are welcome and they're needed. You can do so at sanctorum.us. Just look for the donate link. We ended our last episode with the dour spiritual condition of both the United States and Europe at the end of the 18th century. I mentioned Dr. J. Edwin Orr a couple of episodes back. He was the 20th century's foremost expert on revival and spiritual renewal. While he could speak with eloquence on literally dozens of revivals, one of his favorite subjects was what's come to be known as the Second Great Awakening. Before it began, there were many who worried that if God did not intervene, Christianity might well die out of Europe and the United States. Following independence from England, many American intellectuals fell in love with France. But France was throwing off religious faith as fast as it could. The French Revolution made a mockery of the church and Christianity. A well-known prostitute in Paris was crowned the goddess of reason in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. A majority of churches in France closed, and the famous skeptic Voltaire claimed that Christianity would be consigned to the dustbin of history in only 30 years. Germany, Switzerland, and the Netherlands were taken over by rationalism. England was afflicted by a sophisticated skepticism led by the philosopher David Hume. His attacks on faith are still used on campuses today. French radicals contributed millions of francs to propagandize and seduce American students. In Christian colleges like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, students welcomed the new French ideas, not because they promised justice, but because they welcomed immorality. It was a time of great moral decline. Of a population of 5 million, 300,000 were alcoholics, and they were burying 15,000 of them every year. To give you an idea of just how prolific drinking was, President Washington had to call out troops to put down an armed revolt over alcohol in what's come to be known as the Whiskey Rebellion. There was a plague of lawlessness with bank robberies a daily occurrence. Out-of-wedlock births and STDs skyrocketed. Public profanity soared. Cheating was epidemic. The turn towards immorality was so dramatic, Congress appointed a special commission to investigate what was happening and how to correct it. The commission discovered that in Kentucky, there had been only one court of law held in five years. They simply could not administer justice on the frontier. It became so bad, a group of vigilantes formed and fought a pitched battle with the outlaws and lost. A poll taken at Harvard found that most students were atheists. At Princeton, which was a far more evangelical college, there were only two believers in the entire student body. All but five of the students were members of what was known as the filthy speech movement. Christians were so unpopular, they had to meet in secret. Students burned down buildings and forced college presidents to resign. A mob of students attacked a Presbyterian church, breaking windows and burning the pulpit Bible. Students often entered churches during communion to interrupt the service by spitting on the floor. The largest and fastest growing denomination had been the Methodists, but they were now losing thousands each year. The second largest denomination were the Baptists. They described this time as their most wintry season. 
Presbyterians met in Philadelphia to express their dismay at the immorality of the nation. Lutherans and Episcopalians were so far gone, they held talks considering merging. Samuel Provost, the Bishop of New York, had not confirmed anyone as a new member in so long that he quit and looked for other work. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall, wrote to Bishop Madison of Virginia that the church in the United States was too far gone to ever recover. Charles Lee, a popular hero of the Revolutionary War, loudly advocated pulling down all the churches, claiming that they were obstacles to progress. The church historian Dr. Kenneth Scott Latourette summed it up by saying that it looked as though Christianity was about to be ushered out of the affairs of man. But it wasn't. On the contrary, a mighty outpouring of God's Spirit was about to come. In 1784, Pastor John Erskine of Edinburgh, Scotland, published a plea for prayer by all Christians in Scotland. He sent a copy to Jonathan Edwards in America. Edwards replied in what became a book titled, A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People, an Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth. Erskine published both his book and Edwards' reply as one volume and sent it to Dr. John Rylands, a Baptist leader in Britain. Rylands read it and was so profoundly moved, he pondered what to do with it. He ended up giving it to two men that he knew were men of prayer, and they determined to spread it among church leaders. They convinced dozens of Baptist churches to set aside the first Monday of each month to pray for a spiritual awakening. Other denominations found out what the Baptists were doing, and they joined. Congregationalists, evangelicals in the churches of England and Scotland, and the Methodists all held monthly prayer meetings devoted to praying for revival. Within seven years, Britain was covered with a network of prayer. Then, in 1791, the first evidence of an answer to their prayers began in the churches at Yorkshire. Mockers went to the monthly prayer meetings intending to disrupt them, but went home converted. Some of these meetings were quiet prayer, others quite noisy. Then, in the city of Leeds, the Methodist church there saw a thousand unbelievers brought to faith in just a few months. Soon, all the churches were experiencing the same. What they saw was the renewal of believers and the conversion of the lost. And this winning of so many to Christ stunned both Baptists and Congregationalists. They didn't believe in such instantaneous conversions. They assumed that it took three months of challenge and then another three months of instruction to prove that someone had been converted. That an alcoholic could attend a church meeting and go away converted and dramatically changed was hard for them to believe until they saw it happening in their own services. It revolutionized their understanding of conversion, changing it forever. The revival strengthened evangelicals in the Church of England, like William Wilberforce, who went on to lead the abolition movement in England. The revival moved into Scotland. It swept Wales. By 1796, it had covered Norway. One of the products of real revival is the new ministries that it gives rise to. A pastor named Thomas Charles was moved by the story of a servant girl named Mary Jones, who'd saved up her pennies to buy a Bible. The nearest store was 30 miles away, so on her day off, she walked there, only to find out that the store was sold out. She returned home in tears. Pastor Charles was so moved that he went to London and asked the publishers to print more Bibles. They refused, saying that the revival was just a fad, 
a temporary emotionalism that would quickly pass and there would be no one left to buy the Bibles. So Charles formed the British and Foreign Bible Society, the first of all the Bible societies that would end up printing millions of Bibles that went all over the world. The Second Great Awakening resulted in a mass missionary outreach as well as major social reforms. It led to the abolition of slavery, thousands of schools, and a host of organizations to help the poor and the needy. In the United States and Canada, the first glimmers of revival began in 1792. It started in Boston, where all but a couple of the churches have got off into the era of Unitarianism. In Lenox, Massachusetts, not a single young person had been received into the church in 16 years. So a couple of churches agreed to hold special prayer for revival. They prayed for two years. Then, in 1794, a few pastors sent out a letter to every congregation in the United States calling for a concert of prayer. They'd heard about what was happening in England and determined to do the same. The Presbyterians adopted the challenge to prayer in Mass. Congregationalists, Baptists, and Moravians all took it up, and soon Christians across the nation were praying the first Monday of every month for spiritual awakening. Their prayers were desperate as they realized the urgency of the need. The momentum built over the next four years until 1798 when the Second Great Awakening began in earnest in the United States. One church in New York City began with 80 members. They prayed for revival, and three years later, they had grown to 720. This was typical for most churches during the revival. In the eastern states, there was little to no emotional extravagance. But in the west, the states of Kentucky and Ohio, things were very different. Remember the horrible conditions that had existed on the western frontier. There, People were brought under such conviction of sin that they were often in agony that, once confessed and repented of, was replaced by unbound joy and salvation. Many would go from unrestrained weeping to dancing and celebration. James McCready was the pastor of three small churches in Kentucky. McCready's chief claim to fame was that he was so ugly he attracted attention. His voice was coarse, his style of preaching far from eloquent. In 1799, he said that his ministry was, quote, weeping and mourning with the people of God, unquote. But a year later, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit began in Kentucky. The churches of the frontier were small buildings, inadequate to house all of those who wanted to attend. And so ministers like McCready rode to outdoor campsites where thousands gathered to hear the word of God and take communion. At these camp meetings, as many as 20,000 would show up and stay for three to four days as one preacher after another shared messages. The revival swept Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio. Dr. George Baxter, a Presbyterian minister from Philadelphia, heard about what was happening and went to investigate. He said Kentucky was the most moral place he'd ever seen in his life. He heard not a word of profanity the entire time that he was there and said that a sense of religious awe hovered over the entire countryside. There was a great movement for the further evangelization of the Western frontier. Those who were converted traveled back east to attend college and get their degree in theology so they could return and continue the revival. So, revival broke out in those godless colleges of the east that we talked about earlier. The Westerners then returned home and started dozens of colleges in what today we call the Midwest. Three quarters of all Midwest colleges were the result of the Second Great Awakening. The revival swept the South and was as evident among the slaves as among the white population. 
The War of 1812 interrupted the revival, but historians mostly agree that the Second Great Awakening marked the U.S. as a thoroughly Christian nation. As the awakening began to lose steam, Charles Finney came on the scene with his revival efforts. Beginning in New York State in 1824, he conducted effective meetings in several eastern cities. The greatest took place in Rochester, New York in the fall and winter of 1830-31, when he reported a thousand conversions in a city of 10,000. The revival affected nearby towns as well, with over 1,500 making professions of faith. At the same time, there were about 100,000 conversions in other parts of the country from New York to the Southwest. In 1835, Finney became the president of Oberlin College in Ohio, where he continued to be an influential revivalist through personal campaigns and the wide distribution of his book, Lectures on Revival. It was from the Oberlin campus that the holiness in Pentecostal churches emerged. Not only did Finney's work make a great impact on America, he also made two trips to Europe where he experienced extensive success. Finney is credited with introducing something called the anxious bench in his meetings. This was a place for people who wanted to express a desire for conversion to sit and to wait for someone to lead them to faith by walking them through an understanding of the gospel and then praying with them. The modern-day altar call that's the practice in many evangelical churches and meetings, it's the descendant of Finney's anxious seat. Well, fast forward 50 years from the Great Awakening, and it seemed that the tide had gone out once again. By the 1850s, the country was thriving, largely because of the benefits brought by the awakening. The Midwest was being developed. The economy was booming. People were making 18% interest on their investments. But as is so often the case, economic prosperity turned into a neglect of the spirit. The pursuit of pleasure replaced the pursuit of God. The nation was politically divided over the issue of slavery. And it wasn't just states that were divided. Churches and denominations split over it. Into this national argument that ended up tearing the country in two was added a dose of religious turmoil. A veteran and farmer named William Miller rediscovered the doctrine of the Second Coming. For generations, most of the church considered Bible prophecy a closed book. Miller began teaching on the return of Christ. But he made the mistake that many have and said that Christ would return naming the year 1844 for the event. About a million people followed his views. And when it didn't happen, they were bitterly disillusioned because they'd sold their homes, businesses, and farms. Skeptics piled on the fanaticism of the Millerites and fired up a new round of mocking faith. And then, in 1857, things began to change. What that change was? Well, take a look at it next time. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.